This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Today, we get a backstage pass to Broadway. My guest has designed over 450 shows in New York, 25 on Broadway, and more than 100 off-Broadway. He's been nominated for six Tony Awards, winning for his design of James Lapine's Act One, and a recent win for New York, New York, the musical that is currently playing on Broadway. He's an Obie Award winner for sustained excellence in set design. In short, he is a masterful visual storyteller who collaborates with directors and designers to make theatrical magic. Coming up is my conversation with set designer and author of Transforming Space Over Time, Beowulf Borat. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. It's lovely to be here. Good. As we say in theater, enter Beowulf. <laughs> Do you prefer Wolfie? That is sort of my Broadway nickname, it seems. Uh, Jason Robert Brown coined that many years ago, and it has stuck. So I, I'm good with that. <laughs> and hard not to keep it when a guy like that gives it to you, right? Yes. Well, we share a mutual friend in Susan Stroman, who you are currently up for a Tony, as well as her and many of your peers, for the new show, New York, New York. Yes, indeed. We've been working on it for almost two years now. She's been working on it longer than that, but we are, we're up and running and in the Tony race. I've been reading fantastic reviews and just ideas of how you and she and Lin-Manuel Miranda and- John Kander. Who was part of Kander and Ebb have all been put together here as a dream team. And the pandemic, I'm sure, put a little wrinkle in, in the release time of this. But the pictures are amazing. Well, thanks. The show has been a joy to do. I think they were developing it before the pandemic, and I first heard about it during the pandemic. But coming out of that, it got on a fast track fairly quickly. And the show is intended as a love letter to New York City. It is really about the thing that makes New York a great place, and in many cities, but it's certainly key to New York, is just the immense diversity of who comes here. I read recently there are 500 different languages spoken in New York City, and more than 50% of the population was not born in the United States. So it, it has been for hundreds of years, but remains a place where people come from all over the world, disperse again out into the country often. That salad bowl of ideas all thrown together is what leads to a great deal of creativity and, and thought and intellect. And that's what this show is trying to represent in some ways. All these different people from diverse backgrounds, diverse points of view coming together and the sparks that creates and how that creates new and interesting ideas. And what that meant for me as a set designer was how do I represent that visually? We went through a number of different ways of doing it. It was a long process, but anytime I design a set for a play, I, I read the play, I talk to the director, we talk about what are the ideas that we're trying to express. And, you know, part of my job as a set designer is letting us know that we're in Grand Central Station or letting us know that we're in Central Park, those look kind of location things. I think of that as like an actor 
learning their lines. Like that is the base part of the job, but that's not what makes you good at the job. What I try to do with any set that I'm doing is, is two things. One is have some kind of a conceptual hook. What is important about this story thematically that we're trying to tell? And in this case, it is this idea of mass of diverse humanity coming together. And how do I represent that? What we ended up with in this particular set is a kind of a surround that's made of, of iron fire escapes, a very New York City thing. You see them in every street in New York. They're able to enter and leave the stage, make the stage space bigger, make the space smaller. And around all those fire escapes are hundreds and hundreds of windows, which all can light up and sort of imply an apartment beyond them. But they're all made very skeletally. There's no walls, there's no cornices, there's no buildings. It's just fire escapes and windows. And in my mind, what that is, and I hope for the audience, the fire escapes are a platform that an actor can stand on, a living person can stand on, and the windows imply more living people, imply, imply more humanity. And those two pieces together really define the set. And those are the things that are, that are trying to get the sort of the humanity part of New York City. And then behind them, I do I, I do other scenery, back, painted backdrops or other pieces that fly in in the midst of this or pieces that are pushed on by actors that give us the specificity, specificity of location. Um, <laughs> by the way, speaking of the, specificity of location, I am enjoying the sirens, which uh, I assume <laughs> are coming from your New York City. They are. They are. I've got, I've got all the doors and windows closed and you can still hear the sirens in the background. I know, but I just want the listener to know that somebody in a insane asylum isn't coming to pick me or you up. <laughs> that kind of was helping as you were describing. Really, New York City is an energy and a vibe that is going around the clock. And that was part of what you had to capture just from a, a locale standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I was saying to someone the other day, when I first started coming to Broadway theater, when I was in, in college, I remember every show I went to, I would hear a siren go past and it would kind of take me out of the show. And, you know, 30 years later, I don't even hear them. I wouldn't have even noted the one you just mentioned if, if you not said it. It is so much part of the, just the soundscape of New York of, you know, 9 million people packed in very tight, all living on top of each other, that there's a, a buzz of energy and a buzz of sound and a buzz of light that never goes away. When you first come here, it can be overwhelming and unpleasant. I found it that way the first few years I lived in New York until I kind of adjusted my senses to, to accommodate it. And part of what the set for New York, New York is trying to do also is to get that duality of both what is kind of ugly and abrasive about New York and what is beautiful and show both things counterpointing each other. So all those fire escapes I talked about, they're all made of iron. They're all rusty. There's literally like fake bird poop on some of them. It, it's trying to get the kind of the gritty reality of this very dirty city. And then all of a sudden they will shift and you'll see the Chrysler building glittering in the distance. And there's this sculpture, this architecture of incredible beauty that's suddenly visible to you. Or suddenly the Empire State Building, or you walk into Grand Central and see that incredible ceiling painted with the constellations. And over and over again, we try to create that in the musical where the characters, as they're moving through New York, they walk into some new location. And as an audience member, you experience it hopefully the way that you do in New York, where you're walking through kind of narrow, dark streets, and suddenly it opens up and you get this breathtaking vista of whatever it is. You spoke of this being a love letter to New York, and I have a kind of a love letter for you. I got a text last night from Susan Stroman, and Stroh wrote, Wolfie is a true artist. There's a poetry in his designs. And on top of that, he understands how a show has to move how his set has to be a part of moving the story forward. And he has the soul of a dancer inside of him. 
That's very, very sweet of her to say that. I, I And it is only the soul of a dancer. I have none of the rhythm of a dancer, <laughs> unfortunately. When I design a set with Stroh, and we've been working together for about 15 years now, what I have sort of come to realize is I'm creating a dance partner for her in some ways. I'm, I'm creating a architectural, physical, sculptural surround that is able to dance with the way she's going to move actors and dancers through the space. And that is, it's sort of job one on any kind of a Stroh show. And that's not true of every musical. It's not true of every play that I do. Isn't part of it that they, and this is really important for her, momentum and fluidity and any movement and anything that advances the story should be happening. We don't want a 30-second time for a piece of scenery to come on. Absolutely, yeah. No, we, we have a running joke. Robin Wagner, apparently, a brilliant, great set designer, said to her once, every good scene change is seven seconds long. And I, I curse Robin a lot because they're frequently longer than that. But that's sort of always our goal. It all needs to be kind of in rhythm with the storytelling because her way of expressing story is through movement. She directs and she choreographs, but it, it's all driven by movement and the way bodies move through space. And she's able to do it brilliantly and in a way that really nobody else I've ever worked with can do it with such fluidity. You know, New York, New York is a two and a half hour show where everything in it is two counts of music. There are moments that are not underscored, but constantly I was sitting there with the stage manager and we had a script with the counts of eight of each piece of music written out. We'd say, move this piece of scenery on the two, move this piece of scenery on the six, move this one on the following five. This piece of scenery takes seven seconds to reach the place it has to, this one takes three and so on, but you want it all to land at the same moment. And it all has to land at the same moment that the dancers are also landing and that the music is landing. All of those things are coming together so that it all lines up. And that is what Stroh does incredibly brilliantly. Her sense of timing down to the millisecond is, is phenomenal. And calling that show is much more than just the actor getting their lines right or the dance number happening. The synergy of that having to happen, as you say, on the two count is why I think it it transforms us in the theater because it's so magical and it just sort of opens up your heart and mind to what's possible. It does. It does. And I don't think the audience looks at it and thinks, oh, those six things all happen in the exact same second, but they perceive it. They perceive that the whole world is in sync and sort of beating along in, in rhythm with itself. And that's what makes it beautiful, rhythmically and musically beautiful. So much of what I do is not are not things that people consciously grasp. And I, I think the, this rhythm thing I'm talking about is not, but it is key to making a show work. You've got to get the rhythm right. And it's part of the reason I called the, the book Transforming Space Over Time. It is the most important thing in a set to me. The, you know, the locations, making it pretty, making it evocative, all of that is also important. Making the set function in rhythm with the writing and in rhythm with the music is, is critical. And if you get that right, it all flows like a river. And if you get it wrong, it feels like a bumpy back road. <laughs> Well, I want to give the audience some context too, though. Why you're such a valuable collaborator and work with so many directors is that you are servicing the story and you have all of these skill sets that people probably don't even know. Like they they say, oh, the set is that stuff up on stage. But you are a interpreter and you're a therapist. You're any number of things. Well, between a director and a designer and a writer and a producer. And, you know, some of it... Your relationship is the budget, but you have to have an engineering sense, an architecture sense, uh, art and design sense, vision and imagination. And, and sometimes uh, in, let's say, a sort of more absurd set, you have to build into our imagination the sense of a bigger world and what's going on up beside the proscenium frame. And all of that, in many ways, is invisible to the audience 
once they're on the journey. I feel like you you collaborated with Stroh on the Scottsboro Boys, and I read that portion of your book. So much of the book is a glorious insight to how collaborating works with designers and with directors. You are in there with all of these folks as they are developing original content and asking such important questions about the how. And you have to decide, does this have a frame on it? Does it not have a frame? In Scottsboro Boys, the notion of using a series of chairs to be many other locations is like developing a puzzle that has to be put together a number of transform into other things to make that scene really happen. So I love that stuff. Maybe it's a magic background or the problem solver or something, but as an audience member, it's just so great when you go, oh, I thought that was just library table and two chairs. I didn't realize it was also going to be this and that and this and that. And you're doing it always growing in the show. So it's building, building, building. You are a master puzzler. There are a thousand different parts to the job. And uh, you, you touched on a bunch of things. And let me hit two of them. You know, one of it is sort of talking about something like Scottsboro Boys, where it was, a, you know, essentially a very simple set. It was nine chairs and a couple of frames. And that was all it was. And the chairs were very carefully engineered so that you set them up one way and they were just chairs. You set them up another way, they could lock together like Tinker Toys and they made a box car. You did something else and they made a, a window in a prison. And all of that I worked out with Stro. We talked about the ideas. I built little models so that I did some sketches and then we started making bigger ones and we workshopped them and she, she had dancers move them around. You know, while they looked like these kind of metal chairs, each one was slightly different so they could create these different shapes. They all had to be sturdy enough that a full-grown man could dance on them without them breaking, but they had to be light enough that someone could pick them up and dance with them. That was the engineering challenge of it. Once they were engineered properly and they did all these things, then it allowed her to choreograph with them and to dance with them and tell the story in the really brilliant way she did, where it seemed like there was nothing on stage and yet it kept creating new things. That's theater. That's the heart of it. I quote in the book, and I come back to it often, I worked with the late, great Harold Prince the last 15 years of his life. And he, in fact, is the person who introduced me to Susan Stroman originally. Uh, they They were friends and colleagues, and he put us together on a show. But Hal used to say, when you do a musical, you want to leave a lot of empty space on stage, a lot of black space, a lot of room for the audience to imagine what's there. So they become complicit in the storytelling. And it is a touchstone for me, whether it be something very simple like Scottsboro Boys, where there really was very little there, or even New York, New York, which is a massive set with a lot of scenery. But in the end, it still has a lot of empty space in it. You know, I mentioned earlier that the buildings, such as they are, are just fire escapes and windows. There are no walls, there are no doors, there are no cornices. They are, again, designed to leave a lot of empty space for the audience to fill in, to leave room for that imagination, because it, it makes the audience lean forward and engage with the piece rather than just sitting back. That's the, the fun part of what I do, and it's why I do it. It's, that's the art and the joy is figuring that stuff out. And then when you do figure it out and you put it on stage and an audience perceives it the way you hoped they would, that's the best. When, when you have actually managed to communicate this kind of abstract idea suddenly means something to 1,600 people in an audience, that's wonderful. And then the other part of the job, and you know, time-wise, it is the bigger part of the job, honestly, is the other stuff you mentioned, is the, the more mundane parts of it, having some sense of engineering. I'm not an engineer, and I don't know how things 
are made, but I know enough about it that I know it's kind of generally possible so that I can have a, a smart conversation with the people who are actually doing the math and saying, yes, we need a piece of steel that is this thick to hold up these people and so on. But you do know techniques when you need to use a revolve or you need to do, and you know who to say, build me a big one of those. <laughs> yes, exactly. I know who to go to. I know who's good at it. And I have a sense of, of how it all has to fit together. Another part of the job that I think is is not taught, and, and it's a shame, and I, the more I do this, the more aware I am of the importance of it, is just the managerial part of, of working in show business. The business part of show business is an important part of that phrase. And you know, when I get a job on a big Broadway show, I may be responsible for a budget of millions of dollars, and there are going to be hundreds of people working on that set. Once I come up with the artistic idea that I want to express, I need to provide them the information so that all those people can then build the real thing. My assistants and associates and I, we churn out sets of technical drawings that are architects' blueprints, basically, of every piece of scenery in the show. Exactly what size it is, how big it is, what we want it to be made of, what the finish is, how it needs to work, if it has to be picked up, how light it is. A thousand technical notes that, that pile into these drawings. They're incredibly complex and they're incredibly important because that is literally the blueprint that the whole set will be built from. And then as it's being built, I have to go to the various shops. I talk to the people who are painting it. I talk to the carpenters. I talk to the props people and say, yeah, that suitcase looks great, but it weighs 700 pounds. You can't dance with that. We need to make a light version. And all of that has to happen in usually a relatively compressed time frame. Right, because Broadway houses are not always available and then waiting to see if a show closes, which means that a guy like you may be drawing, may be planning, but the house shape changes and you have to custom drop this into that space. Also, you have to know the logistics of the venue, how much wing space, how much fly space, where do I put all this stuff? Because it's not like you build a house and it stays a house. These rooms go off into the site and actors and dancers still have to cross in. I saw on the 20th century and there was a giant train that came on stage. and It was amazing, but it was even more amazing because I, I knew uh, the conductor. So afterwards I went back and to get that train out of sight for the rest of the show in a, in a place, it was American Airlines. But but the point is, it couldn't just sit backstage. It had to be hoisted up. There's just so much going on. The audience doesn't know what they're getting for their $150 there. The secret of Broadway theaters is they are, for the most part, tiny. And I, I talk about this a little bit in the book. I, I don't go into it too much because it's very nuts and bolts technical, but they are tiny backstage. And on a big show like New York, New York, it is a giant game of three-dimensional Tetris going on backstage to make it all come and go. And everything is moving past each other with about an inch of clearance. And these are big things. My fire escapes in New York, New York weigh 10,000 pounds each. I have a scene where the whole cast is dancing on I-beams. It's a gorgeous scene. It's a brilliant piece of choreography by Stroman. We spent a year developing how that scenery would work. If you want to have people dancing essentially on a balance beam is what they are. They're, they're up in the air, three feet in the air, dancing on a plate of steel. To make that safe and repeatable is tricky. And we workshopped it. We tried different sizes. We tried different heights. We tried different materials. We figured out what we wanted it to be. And then once we've made these things, I have to get them on and off stage in the famous seven seconds. Or less. Or less. And there's no room for them backstage, especially on one side. They come off, they get a motor hook to them, and they flip. They do a 90-degree turn and go straight up into the air so that this 20-foot-long beam is suddenly hanging 20 feet up down. Like a salami in a meat shop. Kind of, yes. And they weigh 1,300 pounds each. They're covered in steel so that when they dance on them, they sound like an I-beam. And you've got two carpenters controlling this motor and maneuvering this massive thing 
flipping 90 degrees in the wings while the show is continuing to happen. I love that. That's magic. That's also why Broadway is a great American export. Like this is something that only Broadway does. It's, you know, it's being done in the West Inn and other places, but really in terms of stage craftsmanship, Broadway does it like no other. And the stagehands on New York, New York are really the best in the business. I had the ideas and I knew in theory how it all worked, but those are the guys who actually make it work. And if they were less talented, I, it wouldn't have worked. We wouldn't have been able to do it because it's it's an incredibly difficult puzzle that the audience never sees and we don't want them to see. Yeah. And I mean, safety, you hear about these Spider-Man shows and some of these others where safety becomes something that is a publicity disaster yeah. if you don't really think about all of that in advance. Yeah. It's yeah. really, really hard. Yeah, we're very, very careful about all that stuff. Yeah. I'm just going to go back to Hal Prince for a second. He, You had a chance to work on The Prince of Broadway, which was a retrospective of Hal's career in a way that I know that you wanted to be on it. And initially you weren't. I had read in your yeah. book that yep. there was another set designer on that. So tell me just about how crestfallen you were initially. <laughs> yeah. It's like overhearing that somebody else is taking the person to the dance that you want to go with. Yeah, ab absolutely. It, it very much feels like that. Like my girlfriend was cheating on me with somebody else. In that particular case, the idea of the show had come to Hal from a, from a producer who was working with a set designer. So the set designer was attached to it already. And it was a designer Hal had worked with before. It wasn't somebody brand new to it. And a good one. And a good one. Yeah, absolutely. And so they were developing it together. And I heard about it and I was, it hurt my feelings because <laughs> I had done a couple of shows with him by then, one on Broadway and another really tough one in London that had never made it to Broadway. As fate would have it, this other designer was not able to deliver what he wanted. I think he was he was a more video-based designer, and they were trying to just do it all as video. And it's just not it's not the vocabulary of of the way Hal directed shows. And and Susan Stroman was the was the choreographer and the co-director on that production. How many scenes were you representing in that? Oh my goodness, I want to say about thirty. I'm I'm kind of making that number up, but it was a lot, and probably fifteen of them quite fully. The the conceit ultimately, once once they had fired this other designer and brought me on board, was Hal said, "I want to represent a slice of each of these shows." as much as we can the way they were done originally. It was a lot of different scenes to try to achieve and some of them quite fully fleshed out. Sometimes it was copying other designers' work. I try very hard not to copy other people's work. I don't do that many revivals, but even when I do them, I try not to look at the original set because I don't want to just copy it. But you know, a certain amount of the original set is always baked into the production. This, all, this stuff is all developed together. It happens with my own work that you know, once you set up the original production, things get staged around what's there and it starts to be part of the script. My first Broadway show was a musical called the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, which has had a long life since then, it's done all over the place. And it's always set in a gymnasium on a basketball court. And all of that is because when I first did the production, we were doing it in the cafeteria. Or was it an auto caffeinasium? <laughs> it, well, it was truly just a cafeteria. I had the idea that it should be a, a sort of multi-use space. But what, what I had found was a picture of one of those multi-use cafeterias that had a, a stage on one end with a basketball court stuck right in the middle of the proscenium because it was also used as a gym. And as an artist, it offended me that there had to be a basketball court in the middle of the proscenium. And what I thought was, well, there's no room in a school for a spelling bee. So it makes sense that it would be in some multi-use space. And my first set for that was this proscenium with a basketball hoop stuck in the middle of it. And that ultimately developed into an entire gymnasium when James Lapine took on the show. My point is, 
ultimately the fact that that show was set in a basketball court was my idea. It's now in every show. Everybody does it. I love how the original offense becomes the homage. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think honestly, it was, it was me uh, still having a, a chip on my shoulder about how arts got short shrift in my high school and everything was the temple of sports. Back to Prince of Broadway. I was suddenly in the position of needing to copy other designers' scenery because that was really the conceit of the show. We were trying to present something Boris Aronson had done originally or trying to present something Eugene Lee had done originally. And it's probably the only time in my career where I very consciously went to the original designs. And I didn't always copy them literally, but I tried to pull details quite accurately from them. It was also part of uh, Hal's vision, right? Which is to to be sure that we're now paying real tribute to those events and and when they happen. So it was about finding a modified way, I guess, to have that smaller sequence still feel as big as the original. As grand as the original. Yeah, absolutely. What I did is that this was a little Easter egg homage. Every one of those sets had the name of the original designer written on it somewhere. The audience couldn't necessarily see it, or sometimes they could, but it was usually woven in somehow. For example, in Fiddler on the Roof, there was a bunch of Cyrillic writing carved on the side of Tevye's milk cart, and it said Aronson in Cyrillic, for those who could read that. And you pay tribute to many of these set designers in your book. So I want to—I would just want to turn to the book because it'll get us right into a series of topics anyway. And you talk about six various directors, five were Broadway shows, one was an off-Broadway show. And you get into the details of the design, the relationship, and also a lot of information by interviewing those directors. And it's an amazing time machine that you take us to that exact moment, but also the creative process of so many people. And then in addition to those that we're talking about, you actually do shine a light on the people before you and the people who had great designs that led to probably a life of designing for yourself, right? That you had studied or been in the audience of and said, wow, I want to do something crazier than that. When I was young, I was probably somewhat guilty of this, but I I feel all the time people say, oh, I don't want to study what's happened before me. I want to do my own thing. And it's great to do your own thing, but it's good to know what came before you. Not because you want to copy it, just because you want to see what it was. And there's something to learn from it. Don't assume you know everything. There is plenty to be learned from those who came before. And you may not like what they did. And you may say, I don't want to copy that. I don't want to do that. Or you may say, oh, that was fantastic, but here's a different way I can do it. I've never taken it as an affront to my own creativity to see how other people did things. And that's what I try to do in the book. Is, is just kind of lean into all of these other wonderful designers who created different things, some of whom I learned from quite directly and some of whom I didn't. But they're all people who, at the very least, affected some of the directors that I talked to in the book. Your first Tony Award was for Act One, and that was a James Lapine production of which you open the book with that, I think that sequence talking about that. It's Act One is one of the most fantastic memoirs of Moss Hart, but there were tons of locations and you you have a, a drawing of a ground plan of act one that kind of blows your mind. It's like a fun house. How would you describe the whole vibe? It's hard to describe it. And in the, that's why I put a lot of pictures of it in the book, but it's Moss Hart's memoir is brilliant. It was written in the fifties, I think, but he talks about his life as a young man coming into the theater. And what's shocking is how everything's exactly the same now. I mean, the details change, but the experience of trying to break into show business seems to have not changed at all in 100 years. The way James wrote the play is based on the memoir. It 
went through many, many locations. I think of, of 35, 40 different locations. Right. When I read though, initially his first draft had 50 locations. Yes. Even more. It was endless. And it, and it was, and it would have been like a five hour long production. So he had to, to trim it down a little bit. There are plenty of plays that are written cinematically where they, they jump from location to location very quickly. And often we do them on basically a bare stage and you push out a table and you do this, you do that. Isn't it becoming more cinematic also because of the big uh, video walls and LED light. I mean, aren't we getting much more changes in big, sweeping, epic vistas and things? Maybe. I am not a fan of big video walls, um, and and I tend to to fight that. Actually, I think it is detrimental to stage design. <laughs> Good. Good. You can throw your fit right now. Yeah. This is your open forum. This is why there's there are two reasons because it, it you know in New York New York we actually talked about doing a video wall we needed a lot of different backgrounds it would have been the most economical way to do it there are two problems with it the biggest one is it just feels kind of lazy to me it it doesn't feel like like as honest stagecraft the reason I really resist them is an LED wall is is light that is emitted towards the audience and it actually it affects your eyes optically and i find it makes it harder for me to see a performer in front of it because there is so much light pouring at my eye no matter how much you try to balance it with stage light on the performer in front of you it's like when someone's standing in front of a tv and they're trying to keep your attention and there's something going on on the tv behind them it's hard to pay attention to them i find the same thing happens on stage and so i just i don't like watching shows that are designed that way and then part of the problem also is once you have a giant TV up there and you put a, a scene on it, the temptation is to animate that scene and have it constantly moving. Yeah, and that's a real problem because we're already overly saturated with screen time. Yeah, and again, it makes it harder to watch the performer, which is really what we're there to do. In, you know, in a movie, it's not a problem because the camera does a soft focus. It pushes the background into soft focus so that, and you zoom in so that suddenly the person's face is most of the image. But on stage, you can't do that. So the, the set design has to control the aperture for you in a way. And I find it incredibly difficult to do with, with a video wall. I, th I think I mentioned this in the book, but really a formative moment for me was a show I did about 15 years ago where we had a big video wall and a very good video designer who you know had, had made the animated background, but done it like carefully so that it wasn't stealing focus too much. And they were trying to control how bright it was, all, doing all the things you should try to do. And we ran some number from the show and I leaned over to my associate and I said, this is the worst show we have ever done. And then there was some technical glitch and the whole video wall went blank, um, it's just black. And the choreographer wanted to run the number again. So they did it again. And it was so much better because I could actually see what was going on. I, and I have never let a video wall in one of my sets <laughs> since then. I, I use video. I, it's a powerful tool and there are times to use it. And I even use LED panels at times. I'm not, I'm not against those as tools, but the idea of just doing kind of a movie screen upstage and putting a set on it, it, it feels lazy to me and it feels destructive. And, and I really, I fight hard against it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm in agreement with you when people talk to me about their one person show and they go, and then I'll show this video and I'll go change my clothes. And I'll come back and go, yeah, I'm not interested in watching a movie while I'm at the theater. Right. If you're going to go take a break, then let us have a break. Let me go to the <laughs> lobby, but, or yeah. they go, I'll start with showing my Tonight Show performance, to me, that's vanity. If you want a credits in the program or something, but you don't have to give me credibility to come out and engage me in a story and take me on a journey because this is, unless you're show showcasing your life story in a way that it's like your funeral and we have to watch it, uh, I'll, I'll be patient for that. But <laughs> not if you're here to tell me the story, then come out and tell me the story. 100%. That's, that's my riff on video and LED walls. <laughs> 
because you talk to all these folks in the book, one of your jobs is to talk to directors and designers. You have often a light designer who's also helping paint the scene and time of day and where's the attention and a sound designer. I'm sure a number of others. I don't know how many in a production you're dealing with. It's it's a lot. I mean, it's often five or six other designers. We all have to work together and, and be telling the same story. It, it generally starts with me. I'm usually the first person hired and I'm kind of creating the architecture that everything else has to fit into. But we all have to be in touch with each other so that it doesn't matter what set I create. If, you can't, if the lighting designer can't light it properly, then it doesn't matter what the set looks like. A good lighting designer can make a mediocre set look good and a bad lighting designer can make a great set look awful. And so it, who that person is, is incredibly important to me. And I work very hand in glove with them from the beginning, especially when I'm doing something that is sort of difficult. It becomes, again, sort of just about space and architecture, but I need to leave places for the lights to go and to light the scenery so that it will look good and to light the performers so they will look good. That is, again, more the technical end of the job. But the lighting designer is someone who is blending that technology with an artistic sense of how you reveal things. Well, it's also emotional. Once you add light to something, you can really create an emotional impact. I know that you wrote in your book that uh, the correct emotional feel is more important over like perfect historical accuracy. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure that there are dramaturgs that are driven mad by that comment. Yeah, I think there are. You know, I'm the child of a historian. My father was an American Civil War historian. So I grew up in a world that that valued historical research. And I try to do it. I, I, you know, I like to do the research, find out what is the historical correct thing, and then I may tinker with it. If I can keep it correct, that's great. But if I can tell the story better by not making it correct, then I will also do that. But I feel like I ought to know that I'm tinkering with, with what was correct. <laughs> right. I had heard your name, by the way. 10 plus years ago at a, a producer's workshop. It was at the Eugene O'Neill and I was on a team with some people. It was essentially a fantasy pitch. So it was just an exercise in class. But one guy mentioned your name because we had to have this big Ferris wheel for kind of a um, devil in the white city kind of thing. And he's like, there's only one guy that can do this. And, <laughs> and, and from that moment, I heard your name. It's not a name people can forget. No, absolutely. It's, it has it's been an advantage as an adult. that The name sticks with you. <laughs> Yeah, but it intrigued me. When I was reading the book, I know that I saw a show that I didn't realize was your show because I wasn't aware of you yet. It was a meteor shower that I saw. I read about it in the book and I was like, oh, this is great. Because first of all, it was a Steve Martin piece. It had Amy Schumer in it. It had Laura Benanti. It had Keegan, Michael Key. Uh, it was very funny. It was slightly absurd. It was surprising where it came around to. I was on this journey going, I'm not sure exactly what I'm enjoying this, but it's a little weird. And the fact that somebody gets hit by a meteor, it's very Steve Martin, that part of it. But when I read your chapter on it, the amount of time and the details of having this sort of classic California home from the 1990s and having to even go through the phases. You, you talk about having this budget and being able to work on these sets. Well, you're sometimes having to design several sets before you get to the set you decide on. Absolutely. Yeah. It takes a lot of prototyping before you figure out what you really want to do. And this one had to have an interior and an exterior and the exterior, when it came time to go to this amazing meteor shower that was coming at this specific time. You didn't just have a star curtain. You went through this big exercise, which you illustrate and show. And I remember that having an impact as an audience member of like, this is an insane 
exterior experience we're having. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I, I talk about it a bit in the book. I always wonder, we, we made an infinity box, which for, I'm trying to get how to describe it, but essentially if you've ever seen two mirrors and you see yourself reflected and you seem to go off into infinity, that's an infinity box. And what we did was we essentially created that on stage, but the one facing the audience was a two-way mirror so you could see into it. And then we put a lot of stars in there so they reflected infinitely. And it had this incredible depth to it that was sort of unique on stage. It was also incredibly expensive to build. And into that, we rigged a bunch of channels of, of LED lights that made the meteors fly across it. They seem to be crossing over a, a series of pyramids or something too, where it was refracting a different way. So it wasn't just a series of points. Yeah. Yes. You know, it, it refracted sort of infinitely off in different directions because we the, the back mirror was a series of mirrored pyramids. And so we made this thing and, and, and I loved it. It was beautiful. But I always wondered, does, would the audience have perceived it any differently had it been a typical Broadway star cloth that we could have done for a tenth of the price? No, it felt to me inventive. I didn't have the first clue of how what was happening or how it was happening. I give the competitive nature of Broadway, the credit, yeah. because it's not quite even the same when you go on the road, when you decide we're going to do the non-equity two or 20 years later, and we're going to have the backdrops from Music Man hanging there. We don't even have an actual gazebo. We just got a, a painted drop. What I'm curious about is it moved a few places to get there. So from a set standpoint, are you designing a new set in each new location? In the case of Meteor Shower, I didn't do the earlier productions. Okay. Um, so in that, in that particular case, I was hired just for the Broadway production. And there, it was a new director. It was, it was really an entirely new production. I don't think, I don't think any of the actors were the same even. Um, so in that case, I just did the Broadway version. But I've done cases, uh, Come From Away, the show that about 9-11 that ran on Broadway for quite a while, I designed. And we did that in five theaters outside of New York before we finally came to Broadway. And we sort of slowly, it was basically the same idea. In Come From Away, there was a lot of open space for the company to work. So that's probably not as hard to transfer from one place to another. It isn't, although interestingly, we started it at La Jolla Playhouse, which is a proscenium theater. And then we did it in Seattle, which was also a proscenium. Then we did it at Ford's Theater, which is a thrust. And so we had to start rethinking how do we stage the show in a different kind of a theater. And what was interesting is it led to a couple of solutions that we liked better. So when we went back to a proscenium from Broadway, we kept them. That was an interesting exercise, although it was, as you say, a relatively simple set. But I love the evolution. To me, having been in television and written screenplays, Theater to me is a place to every time, 10% better, 15% better. Can we improve this thing? Can this look better? Can it feel better? Can it store better? I like that. I, I mean, I know there's a time to put something to bed, but it does feel like, hey, new production, moving in a new place. Let's go through the process. The creative process doesn't stop. Well, and, you know, honestly, when I get to do a show on Broadway, whether it's the first production or whether it's the fifth production, it feels like it is the, the pinnacle of what I do. It doesn't get better than that. And so I want it to be as good as it can possibly be. And people are paying an arm and a leg to see it. I feel like it ought to be as good as I can deliver for that reason as well. But it's also it's just because I want it to be. It, it is an exciting sandbox. I usually have a decent budget to play with. I have the best people in the world building it. And so I can come up with ideas that are a little bit difficult and, and know that somebody, even if I don't quite know how to do it, I can say, this is what I'm trying to achieve. And somebody will be smart enough to do it. I literally just sent that email last night on a, an upcoming production. I'd been sort of chasing my tail on something. I kept trying to come up with solutions that I knew how to engineer. And I finally said, you know what? This is what I want. 
I don't know how to do it, but I think somebody in this room will be smart enough to know how to do it. So this is this is the visual I'm trying to achieve. Let's see if we can figure it out. Isn't it fun to be in a sandbox like that where you can crowdsource a solution? Yeah. Absolutely is. It absolutely is. Now, you also mentioned in the book Sondheim on Sondheim, which was another retrospective of a lifetime career of Broadway royalty and really one of our greatest theatrical treasures in terms of creating musicals. So what was working with Sondheim like in terms of your relationship? Yeah, it's, you know, Steve was the writer and I, I had known him before that and, and knew him after. I, I, you know, I can't say I'm as, I was as close to Steve as I am to the directors. I, I have a less close relationship, but I think in part because I was in Hal Prince's orbit, I think Steve kind of regarded me as one of the kids and was always lovely to me. And whenever I needed something, he would, he would, if I called him asking for a favor, he would usually do it, which was, was lovely. You know, I was in awe of the man. I, I sort of, in some ways, lived my life. The wisdom of his lyrics is so deep that there are, there are songs that I, you know, use as guideposts for how to deal with life to this day. And so getting to work on a show with him was, was extraordinary. And it was a retrospective of his life and his work. And early in the process, I got to spend several days at his house digging through old boxes of his paraphernalia and, and memorabilia, looking for imagery that you know might inspire the sets. It was quite extraordinary to be let, let in in that way. You mentioned his phrase, finishing the hat, which he had a double volume uh, of his lyrics, an amazing combination of books, finishing the hat and... Uh, look, like, look, I made a hat, yeah. yeah. So will you tell the audience what he meant by finishing the hat? Sure. It's a song in, in Sunday in the Park with George, which is, you know, perhaps his, his greatest show of, of a lot of great shows. But first show he wrote with James Lapine. And it's about the artist George Surratt painting his famous painting uh, of Sunday on the Grand Jatte. But there's a moment, their entire number, where George the painter is trying to finish a hat that he's painting on a character. And his girlfriend, who is also his, his artistic muse, wants to go to the Follies. And she's pissed off because she he promised he would take her out that evening and said he's staying home finishing this hat. And there's an entire song about it. And it, it is, the phrase finishing the hat sounds mundane, but what it is trying to express is the kind of the artistic reverie that you fall into. And anyone who has, has created knows this feeling where you, time kind of stops. You get lost in the hat. You get lost in the thing you are creating for 15 minutes or five hours or five days, whatever it is. And I think it's what what leads to the cliche of the, the sort of idiot artist who you know, can't live life and is just lost in his work. But it, it's a very true phenomenon. And it's a kind of a euphoric experience. And it happens to me often. Well, not only to get into a flow state, but also to bring something to life where there wasn't a hat and there is a hat. That's the conundrum when the artist starts to go down to in the birthing process of the hat. It absolutely is. And it, at least in my experience, and I talk about this in the book some, it does not feel like I'm doing it. It feels like something is flowing through me, be it God, be it creative energy, whatever you believe it is. It doesn't quite feel like I'm in control of it. And I think that is that is what's so extraordinary about it. You can't make it happen. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. That's what that phrase has come to mean, is that kind of artistic reverie where you create a thing. Yeah, and you tap into something that you just sort of alluded to, which is how much your subconscious is working on solving these problems. How research and reading and thinking and talking, conversations with designers, and somehow it comes and knocks on your door in the middle of the night. The creative process is not something you can tackle intellectually. You can pile a lot of intellectual information in and hope that it leads somewhere. And I talk to people, I have all those conversations. I do research, I do all of that stuff, but that is not gonna make art. The moments of inspiration where suddenly 
all those pieces connect in some kind of new and exciting way that in my case leads to an idea of what the set could be. I can't control them. I can't like squeeze my muscles and make them happen. I can't say I'm going to spend eight hours and at the end of it, I'm going to know what this is. And there's a degree of craft in what I do. Sometimes inspiration doesn't strike. And then I have to, in a more mundane way, solve those problems. But at its best, inspiration does hit like a stroke of lightning. And I, I talk about it a number of times in the book when those things happened. And it's incredibly exciting. And again, it, it feels like it's not me doing it. It feels like some force working through me. And that is, it's an extraordinary feeling when it happens. You know, another thing that was fun to discover in the book is that you would work with playwright William Shakespeare. That's what it said in, in the off-Broadway production. It gave credit there to the author. It said, director... Kenny Leah. Oh, yeah, yes, yes, right. In, in the list, in the list of, yep, yep, in the listing of who worked on the show. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I find, well, we all like to be acknowledged for things. You know, in the program, everyone likes to see that their name is there and spelled properly. And so at the end of the book, I did an appendix where I tried to list everybody who had worked on each one of these productions so that it's like, you know, I, I would have loved to mention all of them in the text, but it, it just would become too cumbersome. And so that was a way of, of doing it. But of course, the author of that play was William Shakespeare. So. Yeah, no, I think that's funny. One of the things that I love because of comedy is the speed of comedy. And so I want to talk to you both as a writer and director of comedy about the importance of doors. <laughs> doors are crucial. I, especially when I'm working with Susan Stroman, we have what we sort of call door day, where we figure out what is the funniest way to make a door open or close. And when I mess it up, I get no end of grief from her. We just, on, on New York, New York, actually, there were two doors that did not open the way she needed them to open. And because of how intricate that set was, they could not open the way she wanted them to open. It was just physically impossible. And she glowered at me and she was mad at me. And finally, I ended up making two different doors that could wheel on stage to open the way she needed them to open. But but, but in the staging, it was quite clear why she needed them. She wasn't being silly about it. It was there, was, there was storytelling and whether somebody was standing behind the door and which way it opened to reveal somebody beyond the door was crucial. There was, a, there was a correct answer and it is very important. They're obviously critical in a farce, but also the sound of doors, the structure, yep. the way they yep. swing, the strength of them. We were doing a production of Sheer Madness and it required a, a lot of action. This door, in the rehearsal, I kept saying to these guys, this door, a bank truck has to be able to run through this door. Like quit yep, putting these yep. crappy hinges on. Like, and they'd go, well, we thought, I go, no, I need to be able to push a safe through this door and the door jam. And I don't want to see it move. And I don't want to see the setup above moving. And <laughs> they kept saying to me, what's the problem? I go, but the problem is you're not listening. <laughs> like, I don't care what happens to the rest of this door has got to be magic. No, it's very true. I, you know, there's a great little piece of wisdom that's in the book that Jerry Zachs told me. Uh, we were talking about farce and Jerry's a great stager of farce. He directed Meteor Shower, but he was talking about the original production of Lend Me a Tenor, which the great Tony Walton designed. And it's a door slamming farce. And Jerry said what Tony did is he made all the doors freestanding. So they were not actually attached to the walls. They were just ever so slightly upstage of the walls. So you could slam the door and maybe the door frame would shake, but the whole set wouldn't shake. I have not ever tried that myself because I've never had a, a set that quite allowed for it, but it's a great idea. It's a, it's a good piece of wisdom for people building sets. I did a, a show a, about a year ago with Susan Stroman, a, a play called POTUS that is, was a door slamming farce that took place in the White House. And it went through multiple locations and had a lot of doors on it. And we very carefully stepped through every scene with, with two rolling doors and said, is it funnier if it opens this way? Is it funnier if it opens that way? And then I went to my scene shop and I said, these have to be rock solid. I need to be able to slam them shut and, you know, have Vanessa Williams hurl herself into them and it not be a problem. And by the way, you, that was being redundant. The White House and door slamming farce 
mean the exact <laughs> same thing. Yes, perhaps so. Perhaps so. <laughs> An interesting thing that I don't know if you've heard of, but is worthy for you to look up because of your having to solve things with wider prosceniums and different depths. In 2017, I'm probably going to mispronounce the name of the piece, but it was like Bewegit's Land. Now, what it was, they had transformed the German countryside into, a, they used the valley to have like a 30 kilometer long stage. So the audience was on a train passing a series oh, wow. of countryside things where the farmers and the families were the scenes. And so uh -huh. they would see it when the, when the train was passing that post, they would begin to run with a sea monster behind the trees. <laughs> and so, you know, what is it? It's a 10 second scene. If that, there would be people with guns running, you know, there would be, it's worth kind of looking up, but they were entertaining passengers passing in a train. It's really funny. It's almost, I mean, it's sort of the structure of a medieval passion play. They used to have like little biblical scenes on a little wagon and, and it, it was for an illiterate audience and it was a way of telling stories in little snippets. It's actually not unlike a, a Disneyland ride, actually, where you're on a little train passing through and seeing seeing vignettes. I thought it was a really interesting theater art countryside project that it amused me because I kept thinking, how much do these families got to run up and down to make their thing right. work? How many trains pass? At what time right. do you have to be out there? Be ready to do it. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like the, the management end of that sounds massive. <laughs> I can't remember when you mentioned it, but I would love to hear about Ming's Clam Bake. You mentioned it in the book, and it's such an intriguing, mysterious little... Yeah, it's, it's something that doesn't happen anymore, unfortunately. Ming Chao Li was the, ran the design department of Yale Drama School for, God, 30 years. He, like a generation of designers were turned out by him. And, and I, I, I did not go to Yale, so he wasn't my teacher. But at some point, he put together what was called Ming's Clam Bake, but it was, it was a bazaar, basically. All of the, the graduating design programs would come to Lincoln Center for three days, and each student was given a table and a little bulletin board, and you could put up your best work. And they then invited the entire theater community to come and, and look at it and meet people. There are versions of it that happen still. In fact, they're happening this week generally because everyone's just graduated. Right, but final works in, in almost like a theater fair or a... Yeah, it's, it was a job fair, basically, except I don't know how many people actually got jobs from it, but, but that was that was the intent. And, you know, lucky me, I did, in a way, get a job from it. It's where I met Hal Prince originally. He went religiously almost every year to meet people because he just, he loved young people and he loved seeing, like, the weird zany ideas that students were coming up with. But you were you were persistent with him about sending him everything that you ever designed, right? I chase the man forever. That is my best lesson for young young designers coming into the field is you just have to be persistent. I sent postcards. I sent letters. I called. Anytime I was invited to come show my work, I would show up and do it. To this day, if, I, if I'm trying to get a job on a Broadway show, I'll come in and show you my portfolio and talk about ideas. I'm quite happy to do it. Did he first recommend you to his daughter or had he used you on uh, production? He, he first recommended me to his daughter, Daisy. I, I had met him at the Clam Bake. I had stayed in touch and we had met once or twice since then. I sent him a postcard for every play I did in between, hundreds of them probably. And his daughter, Daisy, was directing Jason Robert Brown's musical the last five years and she needed a designer. And he, I think he recommended a couple of people, but I was one of them. And luckily for me, she hired me. Did he say, take this shoebox of 200 postcards and you'll see this guy. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I got it. This was back in the, in the days of uh, answering machines. I remember coming home one day, my answering machine was beeping and, and there was a message saying, hi, my name's Daisy Prince. My father, Hal Prince, recommended me that I should meet you. And we've been friends ever since. We're in fact, I'm doing a, a new show that she and Jason Robert Brown have put together next January. It's been 20 years since we worked together, the three of us, but we're about to do another show. 
Well, I'm going to get busy making a big pile of money so that I can hire you someday on this musical Grounded for Life that I wrote, mm. which is what if, what if a person really was grounded for life? So it's kind of oh, amazing. looks like a 70s kids room, but everybody enters through the toy box and this guy oh, nice. is a prisoner of conscience. But the reason I say that isn't because of your immense talent and now all of your Tony Awards and all of that. It's because I love when tricks happen. I love when sets have surprises. I love when you can pull the window shade down and something else happens. Something is unexpected. In, in my original production of Bunk Bed Brothers, there was a set of bunk beds unassumingly on this set that at the end, it was like a cat's ending. The top bunk blasted off and blew smoke and floated <laughs> over the other brother that was down. And, and they were having sort of a conversation from Apollo to Houston, mm. where the brother on the bunk bed was shining a light down on the globe that had been sitting on the desk the whole time. It was so rewarding to me to have people go, wait a minute, what is happening? This was just a little sitcom on stage. And now there's this now moment. And I feel like moment. that you think that way, like you're not, not to, to be distracting, but if the story in this case, it was the fantasy of two brothers going back to what they played as uh, kids on the, over their walkie talkies. Only now we were realizing it as adults and saying, oh, here's what matters. Their ability mm -hmm. to play with each other is the only way their relationship will survive. Right, right. It's And it, it's imagination. There's there's a joy as an audience member watching when something unexpected and delightful, it's, it's magic. You know, it's, it's part of theater magic. And, you know, I'll give you, we've been talking a lot about New York, New York and Susan Stroman, but there are a couple of moments in that show and they were actually the very first I, design ideas I pitched to her when we started talking about how to create the world of the show. But because she is this brilliant movement artist, this brilliant choreographer, and I know that she can move bodies and props around the stage in this magical way, I had two ideas that, that are still in the show. And one of them is there's a moment where our, our two leads, our two lovers are going to the Whispering Arch in Grand Central Station, which is this little architectural oddity in the basement of Grand Central where if you whisper in one side of it, the sound waves carry across to someone on the other and you can hear them. And so you're in the middle of noisy Grand Central and, and, and you get to this place. And we needed to create it instantly on stage. I couldn't trundle in a big piece of scenery to do it, given how the show was structured. And so I pitched her this idea of a bunch of actors with suitcases or briefcases would be moving across the stage as they are in Grand Central Station. But on the backside of each one of those suitcases is a stone that is the whispering arch with, with the writing that says Oyster Bar over here and Track 26 over there. And in a moment, suddenly those actors spin around, hold their suitcases up in the air and create the arch. And it's in the show to this day, that moment. And there's a similar moment later in the show where the same two lovers have gone to Bow Bridge in Central Park. And again, it needs to happen instantly that we're first in, in Central Park in a snowstorm. And then suddenly they're on Bow Bridge kissing. And I don't want to spend even seven seconds to trundle in a big bridge. And so we had some doormen shoveling snow in the snowstorm. And suddenly the doormen all walk to center stage, hold their snow shovels up in the air, spin them around. And the backside is the railing of, of Bow Bridge. And the two actors are standing behind it. And then just as quickly it disappears in their snow shovels yeah. again. Wow. That's theater magic. That's sort of the combination of props and choreography and music and lighting. You can create those things. Right. And then we return to the thing that Hal Prince said, the audience participates in finishing the bridge. Exactly. They become a part of the production. Yeah. And they, like, they're not confused. They see exactly what's happening. They see that it's a snow shovel. They see the guy holding it. But there is something magical about that and that that is theater at its best and if you did that on film it would look silly but on stage for whatever reason there is because you're there in the room and it's happening in front of you it's extraordinary well i i'm so grateful that stro introduced us and that i got to open this dialogue 
because it's a part of the theatrical world that the audience often doesn't get to hear about or see. And I, I can tell you they can learn a lot more about it. Anybody that has an inkling to, to know what's going on in the theater should read your book because it is loaded. It's not technical and mechanical. It is all creative. It's all about collaboration. It's about discipline. It's about a lifetime of commitment to the arts. Every one of those people that you get a chance to have a dialogue with is got so much of their DNA into theater, making their life better or happier. And subsequently the audience that buys a ticket, I feel like it is a reflection of life itself because the curtain goes up when we're born and it goes down when we pass and everything in between it is some form of theater. And you yeah. happen to know how to translate that into production. Thank you. It's, I mean, the book was a joy to write and it is, it is very much about the creative process and, and how you create stories and how you tell them, but how, how you work together with people to do that, how it's not a, something I'm doing on my own. It, it, it is a lot of people putting their minds together and hopefully making something greater than any of us individually could do. Yeah. And they can learn a lot more about you at BeowulfBorrettDesign.com. I think that's probably the best place to send yeah, them. Yep. There's a yep. great repository of your work there. They should see New York, New York. I, it's on my wish list. I've been overwhelmed with some deadlines, but I, I was watching it coming. I was thinking about going in previews and now I'm I wanted to get there before you win the Tony Awards. <laughs> your, your mouth to God's ear. <laughs> it's a glorious thing to be recognized by your peers. can't remember. I think I was talking to Karen Olivo, who went to receive a Tony for West Side Story. And she said, once they put that label on the show, everybody in the show, everybody doing it, now the way people are watching it in anticipation, the stakes are up. Every voter that goes it's, to see it's, it. It's very true. It's very true. Yeah. I try not to get too caught up in all of it, but of course, you know, you want to win the thing. I was talking to Kenny Leon about this yesterday, I think. And he said, yeah, I try not to get too caught up in it, but somebody's going to win. It might as well be me. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for just hanging with me today. It's absolutely my pleasure. It's really, it's been a joy and an honor to talk to you. So thanks so much. And uh, it's, it's, it's been great fun. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and we will hold your seat for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, with sound editing under the steady hand of Tucker Hazel. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. With additional production support and sanity provided by Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's, or visit our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. You heard that right. It's dot .fun, as in cross your T's and dot your fun. Ciao for now. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of uncertainty, your call.